0: Warning. Warning. Warning! 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 Trigger alert. alert!
1: She' about to say some real shit.
0: Bill Adler doesn't even have a cell phone. He, you borrowed. Somehow he managed to borrow his wife's cell. phone. What? Bill Adler did not have a cell phone. What he, I was like, "Call me when you get there." He said, "I had to borrow my wife's cell phone so I could call you," <laughs> and I was like, "Damn, what a nice yeah." No, no, it's pretty. Uh, he says, "Well, I don't really generally need one." He's, you know, I work at home. I'm like, "Yeah," and thank God he's not into all that. Like, um, I don't know inst- anybody in- Instagram nonsense like the, you know, the rest of us. Is that better? Oh, I was adjusting my own mic all by myself. I was. You would have been so proud of me. I was like a little, am gonna engineer, a little studio engineer. I'm gonna
2: go listen to it. I'm gonna be like, oh god, it sounds horrible. Uh, yeah, she you, had the microphone
0: uh, pointed backwards, and she didn't even say anything into the microphone. <laughs> anyway, um, here we are in the middle of March, and uh, here we are in the middle of March. Both of
2: us alone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who sang that song?
2: And I just popped in my head.
0: Really. Ah, oh, reminiscent of Brad now down. Now I got to think about it. Down.
2: Uh, oh, God, I don't know. Can't get any further. Also than that also sounds
0: like the Silver Spoons. Um, remember Silver Spoons, that show with Ricky Schroeder? <laughs> <laughs> no. Here we are. a couple I blocked of d- it. A couple of Silver Spoons. I
2: blocked it from my mind.
0: <laughs> he had that giant locomotive in his house. So that was pretty awesome. Any kid could relate to that. Yeah. Wanting to, Wanting to, you know. Be rich enough to have your own locomotive in your living room. Oh, yeah. Come um on. Speaking of locomotives and moving forward and Everybody's really... that
2: is doing the locomotion. It's just...
0: Come on, baby, do the look of. I can sing. I really can sing. Okay? Now, how did I get involved in all this visual art bullshit? I don't even know. Um... Oh, uh, let's talk about let's talk about is, our guest today. Did we just
2: distract ourselves. You you're gonna have to do all the talking. Well,
0: so I, first of all, Brad, you fucking missed. I it. know because this know. guy because
2: I was skiing.
0: This this man, <laughs> yeah. You are like I'm sorry, I'm skiing. Busy, busy with my kids. Doing, I was uh, busy
2: being a uh, privileged white male.
0: Yes, well, as <laughs> somebody's got to do it. You know what I mean? Um. Well, while you were enjoying the slopes, I was over here doing it, work. It was
2: kind of icy, okay?
0: Um, <laughs> was it? Really? Wasn't good skiing? It was
2: okay. It was icy.
0: And what does that mean? You're faster, you you're slower, you're your scared? You scrape your ass down the hill. Ah.
2: It's, it's, the, it's the eastern way, it's the east coast way.
0: Right, because it always sort of gets like a thin layer of ice on top because uh, it melts, it, right? Well, and then it refreezes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so, yeah. Ah, science.
2: But enough about me.
0: Enough. <laughs> I mean, Never about my problems. A wonderful my vacation. My, my, scraping, my <laughs> <laughs> uh, scraping my way down down a mountain with my children and my wife.
2: Oh, Muffy, it was horrible. <laughs> Next year we're definitely going to the Bahamas.
0: i mean for sure, <laughs> darling. Um, I was I was uh, you know when you were skiing, I was uh, tortured with my like staycation trying to do like activities. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, I don't want yeah, to be yeah, part yeah. of that. Yeah, no, I gotta, I gotta get to the lodge, ASAP. <laughs> um,
2: but you did manage to do this I recording manage, on I your did, own. I,
0: I can't even believe. First of all, I know how to sing, and I know <laughs> how to like record a podcast. Bye, Brad. Okay, <laughs> new life starting today. Oh shit!
2: All right, I'm leaving.
0: Um, no, we had this incredible guest that you would have loved. Yes, I know. So a music, a huge fan of music, of all kinds of music, but more than all kinds of music, sort of black music, black American music, really uh, was all about, like, the Motown sound. Grew up in Detroit. Love it. Um, then was on the radio, then became a music critic and journalist, and then somehow... Ended up being the first publicist for Def Jam Records in its infancy and helped perpetuating a tiny subculture into a global American culture with, um, you know, the help of Run (laughs) DMC. But... but yeah, Bill,
2: that is pretty epic.
0: Bill Adler is an incredibly epic person, but also he concepted Christmas in Hollison, which is really funny to me that you missed it because I remember when we were hanging out in the early 90s and you had all these 45 records in your old apartment in 6th Street. Okay. You had the only rock records you had we're run DMC Records, and one of them was Christmas and Hollis, and I was like, damn, Brad, I guess Brad's kind of cool. <laughs> but Bill Adler was like, hey, how come we don't have, like, a Christmas song? We need to do a Christmas song. A very old tradition of Jews coming up with Christmas songs for, you know, all you white guys. Yeah, but, the, but also,
2: you got to remember that, especially during the 80s, a lot of people tried and failed to do Christmas songs.
0: Really? Yeah, man.
2: There were some real losers. That was definitely seen as like an awesome revenue stream if you could get it.
0: But, right, because if you think about like all of the really important uh, Christmas records that were made by rap or rock, there's like, there's, no, there's, yeah, there's not nothing. There's almost nothing. It's not a lot. It's just really the waitresses, right? Christmas yeah, but, rapping.
2: But a lot of people tried and failed. I'll say Why? that. Why? Because especially becomes too, in like, like, country okay? music, every, every country artist does a Christmas song. And they, most just of need, those they need to go stop anywhere. singing altogether. Can
0: you just stop making country music, please, people?
2: But <laughs> even even the pop stars, man, like I think after yeah, after I mean Mariah, right? It's the biggest yeah, selling Yeah. Uh, like The Waitress's on one was kind wager, of the first right? kind of big alternative. Yes. But yeah, obviously there's just, there's a the first hip.
0: I but it's almost like and you still can name five. Them. You right. You can name about five. Yeah. Like alternative Christmas records, yeah. right? From like contemporary yeah. musicians that are like still relevant. Yes, I guess it's a that's it's a hard nut to crack. Yeah, it's a
2: good nut to crack. And but, it's a good it's nut hard. to
0: crack. Uh, hard nuts are good nuts, <laughs> usually to crack. <laughs> like, bring them, bring them, bring <laughs> them. <nuts. laughs>
2: but it's brilliant.
0: So instead of me telling you all about it, why don't we just listen to this damn interview? Oh yeah, with the one and only Bill Adler. I need to listen. Yeah, All
2: get right. on. Put it on your put it on your ear muffins. Where's where's the play button? Oh, there it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm so excited to interview you, Bill Adler. You are such an interesting person.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, first of all, you're a Sagittarius like myself.
1: Well, well. It's
0: very funny, though. When when I'm doing research for my guests. Yes, ma'am. It's, it's very interesting how some sites present people. So Wikipedia gives me a whole bunch of different... Um, External links and books and this and that, and then when I go onto the internet movie database, they're like star sign, Sagittarius. <laughs>
1: like, oh, that's right. That's right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I, I, I just thought it. I thought it was so funny. Okay, so you're originally from Brooklyn. It's true. And then you moved to Detroit. Why did your family want to leave New York?
1: You know, it's it's a very good question, um, and I think it was the kind of question that that bugged. Uh, those parts of the family that remained here. You know, my mom was born in Brooklyn. My father was born in Jersey City. They met at NYU. And, uh, you know, uh, they got married. They made uh three babies pretty quickly in Brooklyn. And I'm not sure what it was. You know, uh my old man, actually, as I think about it, um, he was no fan of Manhattan. And okay. he'd, he'd been working in Manhattan. It was just too much for him. You know, my mother used to clown him. She called him, so you we're know, in we're in Brooklyn, Sheep'shead Bay. In Sheep'shead Bay, so uh, my mother used to call my father as as uh, you know country, you know. But you know she tagged along with him, and so okay. they moved to Detroit in the fall of nineteen fifty six before I turned five. And you know it turned out to be really a wonderful place to be and a wonderful place to grow up uh, at that time. Okay, and. So and I think my old man was was uh, you know happy there and we moved to the suburbs by the time I started high school, but uh, yeah, Brooklyn and then Detroit.
0: Okay, so you so you were a music editor basically right in college and a DJ, all that. And so you were drawn, although
1: it wasn't really in college. I'm a college dropout.
0: Oh, me too. Great.
1: So <laughs> what, what I liked. I I didn't care about uh, school. This is the University of Michigan. Uh, Tough school. Well, sure, but, you know. Academically, it's a tough school. I got in and, um, you know, I started to study, you know, liberal arts. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wasn't (laughs) engaged by the coursework. What I liked was Ann Arbor. Okay. So Ann Arbor, you know, I I land there in the fall of 69, and it was really— uh, one of the great regional hubs of this hippie thing. And uh, it was just what I needed. And so, you know, I ended up staying there for six and a half years. And during the course of that time, I began to find myself, which is all that you want to happen in college anyway. Right. You, You know, people go to college, I think, because they're waiting for lightning to strike them. What will I do for the next, you know, for the rest of my life?
0: Well, I think it's also, it's a lot of pressure to put on young people to make these decisions to... Start, you know, the roadwork of their career so young. Well, or
1: you know, it's a way of, of putting off the decisions. It's a way True. of it's a way of you know discovering yourself and, and you know making a decision about you know at least tentatively at the beginning of your your uh, working life. What will I do? But you know, I I was somebody. You know, I there are a couple of things. One thing about me is that I understood early uh, what I didn't like even if I didn't know what I did like. Okay. And I did not, can I curse, yeah, by the way? you can curse. Okay, and I did not like fucking school, okay? I did like Ann Arbor. Okay. So, um, you know, as I said, you know, so I was, I, I dropped out, I had some friends, um, you know, I was able to, you know, read what I wanted, smoke what I wanted, um, listen to the music I wanted. And, you know, I was working, the, the one constant of my life in Ann Arbor was, uh, working in a record store there, which which I began doing before my first day of class. So, were you just a, like a music junkie? You just loved music because you know, it seems like
0: you're very attracted to music in many forms.
1: Yeah, sort of. it, it's been the one constant in my life. You know, I were you a musical <clears throat> child? Well, you know, it depends how you measure it. You know, my father was somebody who could sing. You know, if he got if he got drunk at a bar mitzvah. You know, he'd st- he'd eventually get up with the band and sing. You know, begin the begin. Right, and he and he kind of killed it. So my old man had talent. My mother, who grew up in Brooklyn, uh, <clears throat> had very little musical talent. She said that she was classified as a hummer, <laughs> as a hummer. Uh, you know, in the classroom, whenever the the class was singing, they said Esther, no, you hum because you know she had no sense of pitch. Okay, but. Is this too much detail? No, no, no. All right. So anyway, um, so my folks uh, had records, and I listened to the records. And then, you know, again, growing up in Detroit, um, it happened to be a great, great time to grow up in. I imagine so. Although, you know, I had nothing to compare it to. But, you know, it's the era of Motown. It's the 60s and the mid-60s, and— um uh, it's it, you know looking back, it happened to be you know an astonishing period in American musical history, the, the, the history of popular music. So you know I remember you know as a 13 year old, it's 19, it was it 65 or 66. Um, you know I'm in the eighth grade, and looking back on it, it's it, this is remarkable. You know so those are great great years, you know for rock and roll and soul, and even so. You know, I think, you know, we were exposed to a little bit more in Detroit, just on Top 40 radio. Sure. So everything else is going on in 65 and 66. The Motown thing is happening. Stax is happening. The British invasion, you know, on and on and on, you know, folk rock. And in Detroit at that time, Slim Harpo had a top 10 hit with Baby Scratch My Back. Who the hell is that? You're gonna look it up. <laughs> You're gonna look it up, dear. You know what? As a matter of fact, if you really want, if you want to thrill your audience, you'll build a little a little piece of it into your uh, into your show. But you know, Slim Harpo. Um, you know, half a dozen years later, the Rolling Stones would give him props. They would they would record a song of his called "Shake Your Hips." Okay. But baby scratch scratch baby scratch my back. God damn it! That's some re- that's some actual. You know, I'd, I'd call it urban blues. It, it's almost country blues, but it's um, it's sexy as hell, and it's grown up as hell. And it's there on Top 40 Radio. Uh, it struck me at a tender age. You know, I was ready for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, other than that, I mean, you know, uh, Detroit Public Schools at the time uh, offered musical instruction. And so in the fifth grade, uh, uh, I was 10 years old. Uh, they said, if you want to play an instrument, you know, let us know. And I went home and I talked to my mom and I said, mom, you know, I could, you know, what should I play? And she was a fan of Glenn Miller and uh, and Tommy Dorsey. And, you know, she, uh, uh, she'd grown up in the big band era. Okay. And she said, well, why don't you play trombone? So I said, oh, okay. And so I started to play trombone.
0: That seems like a very difficult instrument.
1: Well, you know, again, compared to what? You know, I didn't. I didn't choose any of the others. And, okay, and and and. and but uh, the
0: brass stuff, like you have to be able to blow in a certain way and have like sort of like power. Like I, I remember I couldn't play trumpet or trombone or like. Did you I try could, those things? Right, and I couldn't play flute. I wasn't blowing incorrectly, so they gave you, me the, you.
1: You're kind of. You're they a, gave me the violin.
0: Were, and I and was, was like, this say, Wait is a horrible. Minute. No, you're,
1: you're, you are an unusual woman, an unusual young woman. Very few uh, women that I knew, at least, you know, the, you know I'm whatever, 16 years older than you, you know, were picking up brass instruments at the time. It was going to be a violin or a flute. Okay. You know, but, you know, you say— No, you, no, you I, wanted to, I, wanted
0: to play, I wanted to play like the trumpet. You
1: adventurous individual. I mean, whatever. I'm a rule breaker. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out. I got the violin and um, I was terrible. So, now you're DJing in Ann Arbor. You love Ann Arbor. Right. From there, you started... Writing. Writing and moved into journalism. Yeah. Music critic. Yes. In Boston, in for the Ann Arbor Sun, for the Daily News. Yes. How does that happen? How do you pick up all these freelance gigs in other states?
1: Well... You know, I um, I was in Ann Arbor and I started r- writing for the Ann Arbor Sun, which was you know a hippie newspaper there, and that was pretty easy. Because- I mean,
0: Ann Arbor is really a college town. My sister went to U- University of oh, Michigan, good. and um, I spent a lot of time there. And everything is sort of all the businesses are sort of focused on the college, sure. kind of, right? Like to support yeah the kids, the staff. Like it's a college town. Um, obviously, music is going to be very uh, influential because yeah. it, it's um, young people and um, yes. they love music. Yes. So now it's a hippie newspaper.
1: Yeah. And um, one of my friends at the radio station had been writing for it and he decided he didn't want to. And so when he uh, told his editor that he didn't want to do it anymore, the editor said, Well, you know, who can replace you? And he said, well, Why don't you talk to Bill Adler? And I hadn't really written before, although I'd always I'd been able to write. Okay, um, you know, in school. But the idea of writing music criticism is something I'd never done and never thought of. And uh, so this this guy approached me and said, you know, you want to give it a shot? And I said yes. And I fell into it, and it was fine. Okay, so good. So I did that. And so
0: were you like a hypercritical or were you just sort of uh, like, w- what was your take? Were you a hater, a lover? I'm an enthusiast. Okay, you're an enthusiast. You know, my,
1: you know, my, my idea is, you know, uh, I've encountered this album by this artist and I'm essentially, you know, uh, a fan mm-hmm. and I want to share my enthusiasm. That was my basic idea. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't get into it to, to uh, clown the artists, you know, um, and you know, I don't know that that's generally speaking. Uh, you know, when it comes to folks who are so-called critics, you know, they 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 get into it as enthusiasts. Sure, they're, they're, I agree with that. They're passionate about the idiom. So okay, boom. So I I um I did that, and and uh, I continued to work on the radio. And then after six and a half years, I was I was done with Ann Arbor, and I wanted to move to New York, but um, I. What, was that, what am I thinking of? After, you know, I, I wanted to move to New York, but I was um, – I didn't think I could just make the leap. That's a big leap, you know. To so go, what, to was, go from what An- was
0: calling you uh, – To New was York? was calling to New York?
1: It was my birthright. I was born in New York. I'd always wanted to return to New York. I knew from the time that I was, you know, 10 years old that I wanted to move back to New right. York. You know, my family – we would get in the station wagon, we'd pile into the station wagon and drive from Detroit back to Brooklyn and to Jersey City at least once a year to see, you know, the, sure the folks. To see the fams. Yeah. And, and I dug New York and, and, um, you know, certainly by the time I'm in high school and I start subscribing to Downbeat Magazine as a high schooler. And, you know, so much of the activity was based in New York. The the jazz world was based in New York. And, and, you know, I start writing. I mean, not writing. I'm reading. And and I'm, you know, knocked out by Joseph Heller's Catch-22. And he's a New Yorker. Uh, You know, those kinds of things uh, called to me. But I I did not think I could make uh, the leap— from Ann Arbor to New York like snapping my fingers and so I did a little bit of uh, research and I had a pal from high school who'd ended up at the Berklee School of Music in Boston and I thought, well, you know, I, I, I didn't know anything about Boston. I wasn't a huge sports fan. I didn't give a fuck one way or the other about the Boston Red Sox. You know, um, I, I knew nothing about the city. Nothing. You know, is, it was New England, the, the birthplace of the American Revolution. Sure. Chowder. You,
0: know, you never heard of chowder.
1: Nothing. <laughs> Not not a hint. So I went there, you know, ignorant but open-minded. And sure enough, I was able to find some work in Boston. And, and really, the, uh, you know, I worked on the radio briefly there. And then, you know, uh, starting in, oh, gosh, I don't know, 77, uh, I started freelancing to the Boston Herald. And in, in early 78, I was hired full-time as a pop music critic at the Boston Herald, which was the number two daily after the Boston Globe in Boston. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I was... Um, uh, tired of Boston, and you know, I'd, I'd never lost sight of New York, and so in on July first, nineteen eighty, I moved to New York. That's
0: exciting. And so,
1: as of this coming July first, uh, it'll be forty years.
0: So, where did you move? What neighborhood did you move to when you moved to New York?
1: I had a pal who was in the Village. Uh, on Charles Street, and he'd uh, gone someplace else for the summer, so I was able to stay in his place for two months. And then I moved in with another pal of mine uh, from Ann Arbor, uh, 15th Street and Avenue B or something. Uh-huh. And then uh, November, December of that year, I moved in with uh, the girlfriend of a pal of mine uh, who had a place at number 666. Riverside Drive, I think it was. It was like Riverside Drive. No, not Riverside Drive. West End? West End Avenue. It was six. yeah. <laughs> West End <laughs> Avenue right. at 92nd Street. So, um, yeah, so th- that was that. Then come January, I mean, do you need this kind of detail? Come, come January of 1981, I moved in with my future. You moved a lot for the first year. You were just... The, the first it. half year, I lived in three different places. Okay. You know, and then come... Uh, The beginning of the year, I moved in with my future in laws uh, while I waited for my future wife. Sorry. While I waited for my future wife to leave Boston and join me in New York. Okay,
0: okay, 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 right. First off, nobody knows this in in, uh, podcast land, but your wife. Yes. I'm obsessed with your wife. Uh oh. I love your wife.
1: Me too. I
0: wanted her to come. She's obviously, she's too busy for, for Claudia Gold.
1: Well, just now. Just now, I y- know. You will get her.
0: Um, but your wife is the um, incredible Sarah Moulton. Um, really, if you think about it, she really started the Food Network.
1: She was there early.
0: She was there early, but she gave the Food Network credibility. Oh, okay. Coming from like Gourmet magazine, and um,
1: and her work in the restaurant, world, and her so.
0: work in the restaurant world, and yeah. she is like a a real powerhouse uh, uh, and the nicest, sweetest woman. It's true. Um, so you met your wife in in Boston? And no, we
1: met we met in Ann Arbor.
0: You met in Ann Arbor, and she's from New York.
1: She grew up, you know, at Number One Lexington Avenue. You know, a, a budding. Uh Gramercy Park.
0: Okay. Yeah. And uh, you guys were dating and then you said to her parents, I'm uh, here in New York. I got to live here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, they knew. I mean, yeah, sort of. Right. Okay. B- because also it was clear that, that, you know, by the beginning of 81 that Sarah was going to leave uh, Boston too and move to New York and that we would move in together, which is what we did as of you know, maybe uh, March of So 81. it wasn't
0: like you just came to New York with no plan and that you were just, like, flying by the seat of your pants. You, like,
1: you kind of had a plan. Like, Well, I what I, what I thought was, that, uh, truthfully, I had tried to land a job in New York before I left Boston, you know, and, and so I made a couple of feeble attempts to, to nail down something ahead of time, and I wasn't able to. Okay. So, you know, I went to New York just— you know, having done what I'd already done and thinking maybe I can get, you know, similar kinds of work in New York, but I, I didn't really have anything nailed down, not work-wise.
0: Okay. So uh, what is your first official New York City job? Are you still working for uh, like the your Boston papers while you're here? No, 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 no. I if, left.
1: Okay. If I moved in July, I'll tell you, I think as of, well, as of the, the, that fall... I was freelancing to the Daily News and also to the Village Voice and pretty shortly to People Magazine.
0: Okay. Strictly about music? Were yeah, pretty you, much. Okay. You went from journalism to publicist. Yeah. When you met Russell Simmons and started to work for like the whole Def Jam umbrella, Rush artist management. Yes. Right? Yes. Did you feel like, oh, I have all these connections with all of the, these media contacts, and it's going to be easy for me to sort of, like, flip my position from
1: journalist to— I didn't think about it that much. And, th-
0: like, were there lots of music publicists back then?
1: Well, look, by that time—so if I start working with Russell in eighty-two, <clears throat> June of 1984— Oh, 84, Okay. You know, by that time I'd been a working music journalist for ten years, for t- okay, at least. And so, uh, sure, I knew some some uh, fellow journalists, music journalists. But really, the thing was that I uh, I knew enough publicists, and even though I hadn't done publicity per se, um, here's what happens. You know, Russell. <clears throat> How did you meet Russell? I met Russell like this: in the fall of 1980, I uh, Curtis Blow had a hit with a song called The Breaks, national He's hit. All the breaks. Exactly right. Yeah. Very early rap hit, a national rap hit. And I was paying attention. I thought it was remarkable. And I was writing for the Daily News, and Kurt happened to be from New York City, so it's a local story. And I went to my editor, and I said, well, why don't we talk to this this young man from Harlem? And the guy said, go ahead, do the story. And so I wrote it, and... um You know, met Kurt and also met his producers, Robert Ford and J.B. Moore, and they talked an awful lot about Kurt's manager, this guy, Russell Simmons. And I don't think I met Russ at the time, but his name stayed in my mind. And as of early in 1983, maybe March, um, I was freelancing to people and, um, you know, still following rap. And I went to my editor and I said, you know, this rap thing is continuing to explode. Let me write a story. And this guy said, go ahead and do it. And my idea for it wasn't very much more, much better defined than what I just said to you now. And so, uh, even so, I thought, well, let let me see if I can get my arms around it. And on a whim... I reached out to Russell Simmons, who I had not met, mm-hmm. and Russell turned out to be a whirlwind. And he said, well, look, you know, why don't you just you know, hang out with me one night? And that turned out to be one of the most remarkable nights of my life. It was a typical night for Russ, but it was astonishing for me. You know, It started at midnight at Disco Fever in the Bronx. We drove downtown, and Russell was working, You know, among other things, he was a, a, kind of a club music promoter. So he w- he took a job working for Disco Fever. He was promoting uh, games people play by Sweet G, which was on the Fever label. And so we went from one club to another, where Russ would you know walk right past the velvet rope into the DJ booth, uh, hand a copy of the record of this new record to the jo- uh, you know to the jock. And whisper in his ear a little bit, and we'd we'd hang out, and then we'd split and go to the next spot. So in the course of that night we went to um oh fuck me, I'm trying to think of the name there was there was a a, a club right in Times Square uh that was you know slightly corny but gigantic, and then we went to Bentley's, which was um the kind of place where Andre Harrell, aka Dr Jekyll would hang out. It was kind of for a, a bourgeois black spot. And then we went to the Paradise Garage, which was, you know, pretty gay. Yeah. And then we went to the Roxy, which was, you know, a a complete landmark. I mean, an astonishing place at that time. A a roller rink. A roller rink that was turned into, you know, a hip-hop paradise on Friday and Saturday nights. And then finally, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, we turned around, we went back uptown to Disco Fever. And Disco Fever. So
0: you weren't staying to see the record played and and the people sort of so. like the um,
1: Russell the kept way... it moving.
0: Okay. He, just he kept needed it. to see a lot of DJs that night.
1: Yeah, that's all. Okay. And, and, and then also, you know, the end of the night was going to be at Disco Fever. And Disco Fever, you know, people still don't know enough about it. But I, suffice it to say that after everything else I'd seen that night, Disco Fever was so remarkable to me that I decided that would be the focus of my story. I wasn't going to write from the general to the specific. I was going to write from the specific and let it stand for the general. Okay. So I did, I wrote a feature about Disco Fever for People Magazine. And a year later, I... Um, it was an election year, and I was no fan of Ronald Reagan. And I thought to myself, God, you know, how can we get rid of this stooge? And um, my brilliant idea was to write an anti-Reagan rap. Now, I'm not a rapper, but I can write. And I, I, I thought, well, yeah, the idea was I'll write this. And I'll I'll give the lyrics to Curtis Blow, who I knew, and Kurt would, because I also knew Kurt didn't write all his own rhymes. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe he'll rap this and we can rap Reagan out of office. Or Kurt would record it and we can rap Reagan out of office. Now, to get the lyrics to Kurt, I had to meet with Russ again. And the two of us um, hung out and shot the shit. And uh, I think I read my, my rhymes to, to Russ, and he didn't think much of them, but he was intrigued. He says, Well, what else do you do? And at the time, um, I, through a mutual friend, I'd, I'd met this guy, Steve Gebhardt. And Gebhardt was a dozen years older than me. And back at the very end of the 60s and early 70s, he was like the house filmmaker for John and Yoko. And, you know, everybody knows that the two of them made a, a series of short films at the time, but they weren't actually filmmakers. Creative folks, yes. Sure. Geniuses. But, you know, th- did they actually know the mechanics of making a film? No. Gebhardt did that. Okay. He did all of that. And and so... Takes a village, Bill. It takes a village. Sure. <laughs> so as of, you know, December of 1980, John Lennon is shot and killed. And I met Gebhardt early in 81, and he said... Um, that he wanted to make a documentary film about the life of John Lennon and what I work with him because I'm a writer and Gebhardt was not. And I said, sure. Mm-hmm. So I told Russ about this and he lit up instantly, not because he gave a fuck about John and Yoko, but because he says, you know, I want to make films with my artists someday. He says, why don't you come work with me? And I said, Okay, because I'm still freelancing. I'm not making enough money really to live. You know, thank God my wife made some money. Thank God for Sarah. You know what I mean? Thank, <laughs> thank God for a wife. You know, just, you know. I thank, mean,
0: let's hear it for wives out uh, all over the world. Thank you.
1: Exactly right. So um, Russ said, come work with me, and I said, okay. Now, the thing about Russell is that for all of his brilliance, he's not uh, – He's really not a conventional businessman. You know, he's not a corporate flowchart kind of guy.
0: No, he sort of wrote his own rules of how this all works.
1: Right, and and, and he made it work. So I hung out with him for, you know, the first two weeks I went out with him every night because I just thought, well, why not? And um, then I, you know, I realized that... um, I didn't need to go out with him every night. Invariably, he was, to my way of thinking, he was going to be the most interesting person in the room. Okay, and so uh, I was married by then. I was older than everybody else by then. Uh, You know, I I just, you know, after one night, I went to work the next day. I said, "Listen, Russ, um, I have an idea." I said, "Tomorrow, I'm going to come into work at around nine, and I'll leave at six or seven, and then the next day I'll do the very same thing again. That's how it's going to be." And Russell said, okay, it's not like he cared. And I said, by the way, you know, having had the opportunity to uh, assess his operations such as it was, you know, I was was trying to figure out what all I could actually do for him. And I said, you don't have a publicist. I said, you know, you've got an artist management company and he's about to start Def Jam. This is before uh, DJ 001, LL Cool J's I Need a Beat came out. Okay. I said to him, You don't have a – but, you know, also at that time, forgive me, you know, uh, with Rush, you know, he's managing Curtis and Run DMC and Houdini and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Spider D and Sparky D and um, a bunch of other folks, you know, and and this stuff was happening, happening, and and, uh, mostly – What was being done on their behalf, if they had a publicist at all at any of the the labels, uh, the quality of the work wasn't very high as far as I could judge. So I said to Russell, I said, look, you need a publicist. I'll do that for you. And Russell shrugged and said, okay, go ahead.
0: Now Def Jam Forms got lots of hits, lots of Right away. So Run DMC took over the entire world. It's true. Followed by the Beastie Boys. Exactly with, right. uh, You know, um, I'm sure you were incredibly busy. Yeah. What was your job like when you were being the publicist for these huge rap acts? Like, what, what was your day-to-day?
1: Just... Are you like making
0: sure all the newspapers got their record and and, and –
1: What I did did in some ways was very conventional. I just did it on behalf of these unconventional artists. Okay. I just pretended that, you know, if you were going to pay attention uh, to Michael Jackson, you needed to pay attention to run DMC as well. If you're going to pay attention to, uh, you know, the latest dance records uh, out of England at that time, the records that were uh, – big on M T V at that time. You needed to pay attention to our guys as well. You know, so I would, you know, um which is it you know, what I had going for me as a publicist is that rap music was a huge popular hit, artist by artist and record by record, from the very moment there started to be rap records. Let's not forget the Sugar Hill Gang. That's a record that came out in the fall of 79, I think. And it's one of the very first rap records. It comes out on an independent label. It's 15 minutes long and nobody's singing. Okay. It was was so huge. It was gigantic. And it was gigantic, not just in America. It was an international hit right away. And Essentially, nothing ever changed. It was always gigantic. Right. You know, the, did the music establishment know what the fuck it was? They did not. It took right. them ten years to to start to buy in to that. You know, buy into rap. So it 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 the the eighties were so this what, tremendous era for independent record labels who would take a shot. So
0: why do you think that the industry was so resistant? to embracing rap well you know I mean
1: most as, the, as
0: like a real genre because
1: you know what it, it really was uh, uh, you know for all of its success it was very subcultural you know and there wasn't any obvious connection to what all else was going on at the time if you were a music lover like me you, you knew that there were uh, predecessors obvious predecessors sure. that resulted in rap music but um you know, lots of folks in the industry did not know. So on the one and, and then also it was just such a fucked up time in American popular culture. You know, there was a time, you know, this again, you know, you know, having grown up when I did was just so lucky, you know, for for somebody like me. There was a time, I think in nineteen sixty five when Billboard magazine uh, stopped publishing the black music charts. Because things were so integrated,
0: right? Because it, it, it became popular music. It wasn't. Right. It wasn't black music anymore. That's right. It was American music.
1: That's right. And so, growing up, you know, you could hear the Beatles and Aretha Franklin back to back on the radio. Nobody thought that was odd. It was just what was going on, right? And so, that fell apart in the seventies with so-called AOR radio, when you know, radio moved from AM to FM. And, you know, what had been underground radio was kind of standardized. It became this format called album-oriented radio. And what they did was resegregate American pop. You know, rock and roll integrated American pop, okay? Starting in the 70s, uh, album-oriented rock resegregated it. And so what you had on so-called rock radio was... Uh, th- there were there were no artists of color, none. It was all you know, rock and roll was something made by white white folks.
0: Well, you'd have a little like Thin Lizzie or Jimi Hendrix, but that's about it. Sure. Okay. Um, because they were sort of coming. Well, Thin Lizzy is why, Irish. Why do you think? And because yeah. I think this is a real problem in our culture beyond music. Right. But the hyper labeling of everything and like having to put something into a neat little box. Why is that so necessary? Can't music just be music?
1: Well, you think the way I think, and and also, I mean, you know, as I, as we've discussed, you're younger than I am, but I mean, to me, you know, I came up at a time it's the hippie era when you know one of the one of the watchwords was everything is everything. Okay. So you know, in in some ways, you know, that couldn't be more meaningless, but it meant something to me, which is, you know. Most of the barriers that separate one thing from another are artificially constructed and that, you know, those kind of constructs are what defines somebody being a square. When, you know, that was a term, you know, somebody who just, you know, didn't understand, understand the kind of connections that could be made between two apparently disparate things lived in a box, so he was known as a square, right? And the hipsters and the hippies after him were people who made connections that the squares didn't make, okay? And that's been a guiding rule for me my whole life. Now, all these, you know, decades later, you know, people still want to put stuff in a box and not make these connections. It's just, I understand that it's something that's done all the time, but it's, it's, not, it's not a creative way to think. I'm a creative person, and I'm going to make those kind of connections because they're obvious to me. When it comes to music, how are you going to separate things according to race? It's and, ridiculous. And, 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 and truthfully, how are you going to separate it? You know, by genre, all these things bleed into each other, all of them, all the time, forever.
0: Indeed. And thank God for that, right? Yeah.
1: So um, anyway, so, so these goofy characters, you know, impose a racial restriction on so-called rock and roll in the 70s. Okay. And, you know, black folks had their own radio stations. You know, come the early 80s and the rise of rap, um, what rap managed to do pretty quickly is reintegrate American pop because for all of its foreignness— Um, For all of its strangeness vis-a-vis the pop mainstream, it was hugely popular. So I'd have a conversation. You know, uh, Run DMC went out on the road. uh, You know, the first singles come out in 83. uh, By 1984, uh, the fall of 1984, they're playing arenas.
0: I mean, it was, it went from a blip. I remember seeing it. Do you remember Wolfman Jack had a video? Yeah, of course, loved him. <laughs> Wolfman Jack, oh my god! Um, I was watching Wolfman Jack. I don't remember if it was on Friday night or Saturday night after midnight. It was like a big, like oh, you staying up late to watch like music sure. videos, sure. And uh, when I saw Rockbox, and mind you, I moved from Queens to Long Island. Yeah. To go to sixth grade. Seventh grade, the, the barn bat mitzvah start. And I'm going to say this is like early 80s. And Sugar Hill Gang had to play at least three times at every bar mitzvah because right. it was like the song that brought everyone everyone's grandmother, everyone's aunts, all the kids onto the dance floor. Right. That was like. The bar Mitzvah. Song. Right. That and, and Rock Lobster. And, and, and Rock Lobster. Oh,
1: okay. And remember
0: B 52's Rock, B-52's rock of Lobster? That was huge, huge in the Long Island Bar Mitzvah Circuit. All right. <laughs> and anyway, I remember seeing Rock Box on Wolfman Jack's midnight video show. And I sort of then decided, like, this is what I'm into. And sort of like, I'm abandoning. Uh punk rock and uh, New Wave, but I never did. I always
1: liked all of it of all course. at the same time. So did Run. Right. That's why a rap group <laughs> makes a song called Rock Box and not Rap Box. Right.
0: Indeed. So um yes, it was always huge and it went from a blip on a on a after midnight video show to playing arenas. Right. And, and you know
1: that that one song, that one video really uh, uh, began to integrate MTV and, um, you know, again, getting back to, you know, wh- what was my role in it? You know, uh, so my guys were touring uh, arenas nationally and I would work to, you know, work market by market to get coverage for my guys in any given town. So let's say the tour is going to. This is the Fresh Fest in 1984, and 1985, and the bill is Run DMC and Kurt and Houdini and LL. It's a great tour, and you know I'd call I'd call the music critic at, at the Providence Journal in Providence, Rhode Island, and I'd say, um, "Listen, um, I've got two tickets." For the show on Saturday night, are you interested? in the guy who was, you know, not a bad guy, but just kind of conventional, hemmed in, uh, you know, he's a rock guy. And he said, you know, this rap stuff, I I really don't know much about it. I don't care. I think I'm going to pass. And I'd say, look, do me a favor. Pick up a copy of Billboard. So I knew he had a copy of Billboard. Sure. I said, take a look at the top 20. I said, all three of my groups are in the top 20 on Billboard right now. That's on the pop charts, not on the black charts. I said, also, there are 15,000 local kids who are going to be at the Providence Civic Center on Saturday night. I said, however you feel about this new genre of music, I said, this is a news story here. You can't ignore 15,000 local kids going to hear some music. You're the music critic. I said, you want the tickets now? He said, yeah, I think I'll go take a look. That's the kind of thing that I would do.
0: Now, are you getting national airplay?
1: No, that was the thing about, <laughs> about um, rap also. I mean, really, it's a testament to just how powerful it was because there was so much establishment resistance to it. Absolutely. You know, I think of I think of 86 or going back to Run DMC again. You know, so so they start with Rock Box and the next that's 84. In 85 they put out King of Rock. In 86 is part of the Raising Hell album they put out their version of Walk This Way, which is a cover of a song that was originally recorded by Aerosmith and it features Steve Tyler and Joe Perry. It completely
0: resurrected their career. That that song single-handedly. It also like the visuals of it are so, you know, now in retrospect, are so important because they were, like, literally ripping a wall down. That's right. Between... um, Rock and rap. rap, Rock and rap. But it was more of, like, the rock was, like, the establishment, white people. Like, you know, and, like, no, we're fucking coming through this wall.
1: Right. And guess what? We can perform together side by side. It's not a problem. Right. Okay. And so... Um, but that was a record, you know, as big as it was. And the video, of course, was played to death on MTV.
0: It was a great video. It was like – it was – I felt as if like it, our people were coming through, like move over.
1: Right. right. But um, it it did not get any play on rock radio. It got very little play on rock radio. Um, but it was all over
0: MTV. It was Constantly, on it. but
1: also, I mean, here's the thing. It, I'm telling you right now, it was, it was just odd, right? Rock radio's not going to play it because you know Run M C was too dark complected, right? And uh, black radio had an awful lot of trouble in, uh, integrating rap into their usual programming, and that has to do, you know, my friend Bill Stephanie, who became president of Def Jam uh, when Rick Rubin left, you know, circa. Eighty-eight, eighty-nine, 89, and, and we've remained friends. He's a bright guy, very bright guy, dear friend. And he said, you know, uh, that the problem with rap uh, to radio programmers, black radio programmers and, and uh, black execs at the label was that, that you know, they, they, uh, they took rap to be uh, street culture. Right. And they weren't wrong. But their idea was, you know, they were a little older. Uh, they were kind of aspirational. Uh, uh, they didn't want to be pulled back to the corner.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: I mean truthfully uh, you know there there were certainly there were um conscious black folks political black folks who objected to the rawness of rap and and the uh, the occasional crudeness of it and they they felt it didn't represent uh black folks
0: it's so interesting positively. too right because now it's so so completely uh, beyond sexist, violent, offensive, and back then it seemed like it was almost like you know it was uh, TV youth or something. You know the way they rated it. it's like, and that it was still sort of being flagged for being too street and too raw, right? Where it was had much more manners than it than it does here, you know,
1: 30, 40 years later. Right. And I'm just saying, so, so, you know, we understood it and we did what we could to promote it in ways that did not depend on traditional media. And the whole idea of, you know, street marketing mm-hmm. was invented at that time. And, uh, you know, likewise, I mean, you know, I, I always felt – you know, speaking of Bill Stephanie, I always felt that, that uh, I had it much easier than he did. Before he became president of the label, he was a uh, radio promo for Def Jam. And he had a tough job getting uh, records by our artists onto black radio. It's mostly where he went. I don't think he even tried uh, rock radio very much. Tough gig. Me, what I found as uh you know I'm dealing with you know print journalists and, and critics um, it it seemed relatively easy to me, you know not least because you know a, a print journalist had more range, had more freedom, creative freedom to write about whatever it was that he wanted. Certainly more freedom than, you know, somebody programming a radio station. All that stuff is formatted and you're going to be hemmed in. But if you're a, a, a critic for a newspaper or a magazine, you can write about what the hell you want. And so what I found very early on was that there was tremendous interest uh, from journalists Everywhere
0: it was the hottest shit in the land. It was just all of a sudden fashion changed right. and all the kids were sort of following this Pied piper uh rap music right. around and and sort of you know putting um earmuffs on to everything else and it it excited youth culture in a way that music hadn't for a long time,
1: yeah, exactly right
0: um. Do you feel like you had an advantage with these sort of establishment uh, organizations being white? Well, cuz you're like, "Come on, man." Like, you know what I mean? Like don't be so focused on race, right? Presenting sort of
1: I don't recall I don't recall ever, you know, discussing.
0: No, but there's a, there's some sort of like interesting juxtaposition.
1: Um, let me let me just say this, you know. Uh, and again, Stephanie would you know, has talked about this. You know, our office was uh, a cool little uh, shell. What's the word that people use when they say, you know, we we live in a. A bubble. In a bubble. Okay. Let me start over again. Okay. So our our office was kind of a cool little bubble in terms of race relations. We had black folks and white folks working side by side. And Because it wasn't about that. Right. It just, you know, everybody was kind of equally energized by the work that we were doing, and we respected each other and we came to work every day and did our jobs, you know. And so it wasn't It wasn't a problem. Certainly, you know, it's not like, you know, uh, I had a problem with the artist or they had a problem with me because, you know, and by the way, I'm going to say this, you can use this or not. Um, I know that Jews pass for white. I reject it.
0: I reject it too. I never have considered, and I, I say this constantly, I never knew I was white. I never identified as white. I still don't think I'm white, but I have been told in the last year or two that I'm white. I'm white passing. You're a Jew. You're white to everybody but white people. And when white people are like, you are not white, then are you white? You know what I mean? I agree with you. Jews are kind of on an island of their own they're not people of color they're not white they're just sort of in a bubble
1: well i just <laughs> it's you know i think of it genetically you know we're we're a tribe unto ourselves right. we're we're like the the irish uh, but
0: i agree with you 100% the
1: irish the, you know the celts you know um whoever you know that it, we we come from a particular part of the world and our dna will take us back to that part of the world indeed and so Anyway, and and in fact if you take a look at Def Jam in particular, not that this was, you know, extraordinary, No, no but it's it a was ve- a
0: lot of Jewish people. It was a,
1: it was blacks and Jews working together, which is a more or less constant theme in American music history going back to the beginning. I
0: I agree, cuz I think of show Ge- business. Jews are very progressive in um politically um where they've been um scrutinized and um you know had so many prejudices against them that I feel like growing up you learn that's not how you how you act because we don't like it when it's done to us we don't act like that so Jews it's it's a it, it's very interesting conversation for another another time yeah, I just but, say
1: that you know listen but I
0: agree with you Jews there, have been very very instrumental in um pushing uh black
1: music well you know I wouldn't I wouldn't say pushing I'm just saying Well, let,
0: they're the, the, they're, a, no, they're not the catalyst but they they are you know a help
1: a helper I believe that there's an affinity there is between blacks and Jews in the music business and I'm not even sure why it is. I don't know if it, it comes down to politics as much as it does to culture and to to you know social factors. But it's you also know, so
0: male too. It's so like you know the music business and it's 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 a it's a business format.
1: Well, sure, but there are plenty of creative folks, and I mean there are, there are plenty. I mean you know I mean even what happened to Def Jam upends that because you know. Uh, Rick was the producer and he was, you know, ostensibly the more creative guy and Russell was the manager and he took care of business. Sure. So, you know, so much for stereotypes.
0: Right. The music business is plagued with controversy as is Def Jam. Sure. And as is Russell, Russell is a a hot topic of conversation right now, especially True. in in the media. True. And when I was working at bars and nightclubs in the early 90s, it was a well-known fact between all the female employees. Stay the fuck away from Russell Simmons.
1: Here's the thing, you know.
0: And it's a shame because his legacy is so important. And now people are really coming for him.
1: Right. Well, look, there are a couple of things. You know, well before uh, I started working with Russ, um, you know, I began to understand as a music lover that there was the music and then there were musicians. And it was it was shocking to me as a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old when I start to get into the biography of the musicians to find out that, you know, uh, artist X in his personal life was just a piece of shit. And, and you know, I, I couldn't figure out, well, how, how could he uh, make Music's so beautiful and turned out to be such a uh, a terrible human being besides, and I, I I don't have an answer to it, except I accept it okay I accept that you know artists are human beings, and that uh, many of them are not saints, right. even if they do saintly work, so there is the work, and there is the worker, and you know i 'd begun to uh, separate them the art from the artist the art from the artist. Um, a long time, you know, before I started working at Def Jam, and you know, vis-a-vis Russ, you know, um, I know that you know he went out every single night of his life, and most nights uh, he'd end up with uh, you know a woman. Uh, I did not hang out with him. Certainly, I, you know, I did not hang out between the hours of midnight and six a.m. with Russ. He had other friends who did that with him. Uh, I worked at Def Jam between uh, 1984 and 1990, and um, I never heard a word said about Russell's sexual adventures or sexual misadventures. Nothing, okay? And, uh, you know, now these allegations have come out. And Russell, as everybody knows, strenuously denies every single one. And again, on the basis of what I personally know about Russell, it's uh, I, I, I've seen no evidence of it myself. I've heard no evidence of it myself. Having said that, um, I believe that this is a very important moment. Uh, you, you know, this whole uh, Me Too movement is hugely important, and it speaks to really uh, all the factors that would keep a woman silent in the face of even rape. And, um, you know, are there – is there a small minority of women who speak up about these kind of attacks? Uh, Is there a small minority uh, inclined to take advantage of the present moment to shake down a rich man? They're going to make a false allegation about him and it's going to be so embarrassing to this individual that he will pay you off. I believe there's a small minority of women who will do it. But I also believe that the vast majority of women who – Make these kind of allegations in the present moment. Do so against heavy odds. As many women as we hear uh, hear from, even today, they're just a tiny fraction of the number of women who have to endure these kind of attacks. So a woman—it's been
0: normalized in the culture forever, forever,
1: forever. So for a woman to stand up and say, um. You know, this is what happened to me. This man violated me in the following fashion. It it takes tremendous courage to do it. And I'm inclined to accept at face value the majority of these allegations.
0: Fair enough. Me Too is a very uh, polarizing and confusing world to navigate I'm sure as a man, definitely as a woman. Um, it's interesting, Kobe Bryant is this very like polarizing figure on my Facebook. All of the men on my Facebook all defend him. You don't know what happened. You weren't there. The man paid his thing. He's a genius. He's the best. He's the greatest. Most of the white, white-passing feminists, uh, which is another... Big group of friends of mine are like, this guy's a fucking rapist. This guy completely um, threatened this woman. She was afraid to testify. Let's not forget. The, th- the fact is nobody knows except for her and him, right? Really? And sort of what is our place to judge at all?
1: What occurs to me, that, you know, is really the, the key figures in this are black women. The heat has arisen because first Oprah and then Gail King. Right, uh,
0: but Gayle King was just taken. Uh, oh, it was taken out of context. I'm just and, saying this
1: speaks but, to uh, a, a broader phenomenon, which is um, black women in a situation like this are in effect uh, forced to choose between their racial identity and their sexual identity. I know. And um, it's very, very difficult. There will be a price for them to pay. If, you know, if in fact, a black woman you know, makes an allegation like that against a black man, you know, is she standing up for herself? Is she being strong as a woman? You know, or is she being a kind of a race traitor? How dare she say this uh, about a black man and particularly a prominent black man? And that's an ongoing discussion right now, and that's what a lot of the hubbub is about right yes, now. Yes, indeed. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, what made you decide to leave Def Jam? Sort of in its, you know, prime. Um, I had a boyfriend who was a Def Jam artist. Who was that? Sam Sever. Oh, really? <laughs> Ah uh, yes,
1: I love Sam.
0: Yeah, Sam's great. Uh, Downtown Science, shout out to Downtown Science, Def Jam, and Third Bass. And oh yes, and he produced uh, Third Bass. indeed, indeed. So and he did the well, he did the drums on the first Run DMC record.
1: Yeah, he's great, yeah, great yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and
0: he was in your movie Tougher Than Leather. But he has a cameo in it. <laughs>
1: that, I, I blinked and I missed it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. So anyway. I left because they wouldn't pay me anymore. And actually, at that point, you know—
0: You're like you're finally making money. You can't pay me.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, truthfully, you know, I was saying, if you can't pay me more in terms of a salary, give me a piece of the company. Sure. I've been here since before the first single. We've had nothing but hits. Um, And Russell wouldn't hear of it. And so I left. Okay. And you went where and decided to do what? Um. You know, I did a variety of things. I mean, the first thing I did uh was I, I started a, a little PR company of my own, and I did that for maybe a year. And then uh, in 1992, uh, I worked that calendar year as a, a VP of PR at uh, Island Records. I was hired by Chris Blackwell. And uh that didn't work out so very well, so I was basically fired before the year was out. And then I restarted. Um, my own PR company, and I did that between, you know, whatever it would have been, 93 and 96. And then, you know, by that time, I mean, things are just so um, kind of random or at least unpredictable. You know, I'd I'd begun, 92, 93, I'd begun working with uh, a poet named Bob Holman and you know bob's basically a kind of a beatnik or 10 minutes after being a beatnik you know uh he used to he got to start in new york uh you know performing at the uh, at the st marks poetry project um and then he was involved with the the uh the neorican po- uh, Yorkin... poetry cafe yeah
0: alphabet wow, city
1: i feel yeah i feel really dumb don't don't get me fumbling about this and then bob was working at the Recon poets cafe uh on East 3rd Street, maybe. And, uh, you know, he was uh, open-minded enough to hear rap as poetry. Mm -hmm. And so he came to me and he said, listen, let's put together a series of rap meets poetry readings. And so we did that and generated a lot of interest. And by 94, 95, we had a record deal We created a label called New Yo Records, and we put out a few records. And then uh, the plug was pulled, and then it was revived in 96 when Danny Goldberg uh, went to Mercury Records and became became president. And Danny gave us another shot, and we created – basically it was the same label, and we decided to call it Mouth Almighty, Mouth Almighty Records. Okay. uh, Having taken our inspiration from Houdini – Uh, who did a song called Big Mouth and included mouth, 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 almighty. And so, um... uh, That one
0: that you got a big mouth, a
1: big mouth. That's right. That one? All right, all right.
0: See, I know my rap.
1: Right. so, (laughs) So that lasted between 96 and 98. That was something I did. Oh, and then, you know, again, you know, kind of one thing leads to another, you know, um... You know, I started to do some consulting, although I did it sort of for free. You know, I don't even want to talk about it. Some books,
0: some movies. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I, I, you know, I wrote a book about Run DMC in 1987. I um, wrote the text for a book of photos by Jeanette Beckman. I brought, in,
0: I brought my copy with me that I right, had in
1: 1991.
0: I've had for. 30 years, I guess. That's right, and I brought it for you to sign. I well, have, I, I feel, a I
1: feel, I feel dumb because, um, you know, I've just absorbed, you know, since you and I met whatever it was a month ago, you know, I, I, um,
0: I showed at your gallery, just so you know. Just wait a minute. Just wait a
1: minute. <laughs> I know, I know, say, say talked about the gallery. Anyway, I, I um, I bought a copy okay. of Bombshell, The Life and Crimes of Claw Money, um, <laughs> after we met, really, uh, about a month ago, and I've just absorbed it, and I think it's fantastic. And I feel like an idiot for not having brought my copy for you to sign.
0: Well, ne- that's a great book. I'm waiting for my invitation um, for dinner. Oh, sir. I see.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. So yeah, I, I you know I, I I made one book about Run DMC, and I wrote another book about you know uh, hip hop photography, rap, and then and then um,
0: a generation of black rockers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Taking my cue from Greg Tate. You know what do I talk about now? I mean, do I so, sk- yeah. do I skip from '98 to 2003? Sure. Yeah, in 2003, you know, I, I started to do a couple of things. You know, I uh, I opened a, a, a photo gallery devoted to hip hop photography, and also I started to work with Perry Films on a documentary, a multi part documentary about the history of rap music that they came out on VH1 in 2004, I think it was. Okay. But uh, so there was that. that So let's
0: talk about iJammy a little bit more and about
1: your gallery. The iJammy Photo Gallery, uh, which was, or no, it was called the iJammy Fine Arts Gallery. Why iJammy? Uh, well, that was Sasha Jenkins. Uh, I know.
0: I mean, it's so Sasha Jenkins.
1: And Sasha, Sasha, you know, uh, by that time, you know, I'd been friends with the guys from Ego Trip magazine for a while. Uh, you know, they they'd had an office on maybe West Sixteenth Street or something, and uh, the the um, the lease ran out, and they were looking for a place to move. And it so happened that there was you know, an office down the hall from where I was on West 25th Street, and they moved in there. Okay. So we, we were close during that time, and um, I was talking to Sasha about wanting to open this gallery, but I didn't have a name for it. And he said, why don't, why don't you call it iJammy? And I thought to myself, I, "Eye Jammy? What's an iJammy? And he says, if you get punched in the eye. yes.
0: But it's just You're, very like New. It's like New York slang, but it's so specific. It's so Sasha,
1: right? And it, but it's also it's it's very hip hop. It is very hip hop, indeed. And so so I liked it, and that's what it was. And I I ran the gallery between two thousand three and two thousand seven, and um, gee, that was a lot of fun.
0: I was in your skateboard. There
1: was like a well, skateboard show. Well, that's that's uh, due to our friend, Mr. Say Adams. Oh, so. indeed. Say. Shout out to Say Adams. Um, Say was the curator of that show. Was he? Of course. Um, and Say also was going to be, you know, so Say was the one who knew Claw Money. Right. I did not.
0: I'm in your book. In the book with you and Say, the hip-hop book. Well,
1: again, see, that's yeah. a book, that you know, that, that's something else we did, uh, Say and I together in I want to say, two thousand eight. In okay. the fall of two thousand eight, we put out a book called "Definition: The Art and Design of Hip Hop." And Say and I were the co-editors of it. But I will, you know, I have no problem giving him credit for the idea for the book. He's a guy, you know, as a visual artist in hip hop, he's always felt, uh, you know, like a stepchild you know these rappers get all the, they, uh, the uh, all the love oh here's Klaus saying, that's true you know it
0: but it, you know it's so incredible how much of an impact those visuals his particular visuals have had on the culture of course and I, you know
1: listen i'm the, I, i'm i might it might sound like you uh, i'm clowning you i'm not i promise you uh-huh. it's because i thought there was some justice to what he had to say that i worked with him on the book sure so.
0: um I mean, I think Say is sort of the guy, like you know. Who you know what's great about sort Se- of uh, like the architect of, vis- of hip hop visuals. You
1: well, know? you know what? What's remarkable about Say, you know, his own particular talent aside, Say's talent as an artist himself aside, what's remarkable about him, one of the things that's remarkable about him is his embrace of the work of other artists. Yes.
0: He's a a giver, a sharer, he's a teacher, and he's incredibly generous.
1: Right. He's very generous. And so that was, you know, the the vision behind the making of, of Definition was, wait a minute, you know, hip hop oriented artists in a number of uh, different genres and a number of different idioms have been influencing, you know, the America's visual arts, you know, for forty years right. already. So let's let's give them props.
0: And um, I always have ha- felt very um, alienated from hip hop when I was, especially when I was writing graffiti, when I would kind of be hired to do backdrops or the sets for videos. When you say alienated
1: from hip-hop, you mean alienated from rap.
0: Ah, right. right.
1: Or the rap music Or business. the
0: rap music. Yeah. I, I felt, you know, I was hired to do lots of um, video work. Right. And this is sort of, I was a stylist, and I would do some set design stuff, and I was just sort of like in, in that world – Um. And I'd be like, hey, I'm here to do the graffiti. Hey, it's me. And uh, it it was a a less than fanfare reception. (laughs) Like, you're doing the graffiti. Like, whose mom's is this? (laughs) Do you know what I mean?
1: Well, I I promise you. But, you know, know, I did a dazzling
0: job. I did a dazzling job.
1: Of course you did. But, you know, I'm telling you, that kind of reaction from these rappers, I think, had less to do with you know, your, your gender than with, you know, what, what Say felt, which was the extent to which uh, hip-hop's visual arts were uh, given a second-class status by people in the music business. Right.
0: But also, Say can talk about all the artists he's worked with in, in that capacity. I cannot because they were not hiring other graffiti artists to do the work.
1: Yes, broadly, I would say that's true. But then again, your reaction to this kind of bias has been super hip-hop. You found some doors closed, and you just busted through some walls. Right, I'm like, you've hey, made, you've I'm made, here, right. You've made a, right, you've made a number of other opportunities for yourself.
0: For sure, 100%. Right. Is that necessarily like hip-hop? Is that like—
1: I call it hip-hop.
0: Okay, fair, fair enough.
1: Or you know, or or you know, you can say it's real life. I mean, you know, I, I think of my career. You know, my career hasn't been defined solely by hip hop. And what I have found over and over again is, you know, what's been instructive to me is the number of times I've failed. You know, I try something, it doesn't work. You know, there's nothing to do but dust yourself off and try something again. Try something new. That's it. That's kind of, That's that's kind of basic. Having said that, you know uh, that impulse, writ large, defines hip-hop, given, you know, kind of how far out of the mainstream it was to begin with.
0: Right. So do you think hip-hop is still a subculture?
1: Well, I think there are subcultures within it. I think okay. I, I think at one and the same time, it's, it's super pop, and yet, you know, and I'm, I'm no, uh, I'm not at all a deep student of contemporary rap. Uh, But having said that, it doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't scenes, not just, you know, all over the country, but all over the world where uh, people are still doing what, what rappers did at the very beginning. I mean, you know, you go back to, you know, there were independent labels. And uh, artists, independent, you know, you know, think of, of uh, Luke Skywalker making his own records, sure. and, and Too Short making his own records to begin with. Who needs a fucking label? I'll make my own label. You know that kind of that kind of impulse uh, uh, adheres. You know, to the present day continues to the present day. You know, in in slightly different forms. You know, now it's easier than ever to make a record. You know, you can do it at home, and you can make a video at home, and you can post it to YouTube. And there's an awful lot of that that still goes on. And then also, yeah, then you know, you you can be you can be Jay Z, and you're a billionaire, and you do whatever the hell you want. So you know, at this point, you know, it's useful to think of how much time has elapsed. You know, I wrote a story for the Smithsonian Magazine um, just this past December to mark. The 40th anniversary of the release of Christmas Rappin' by Curtis Blow. That's a long time for things to develop. And so at one and the same time, you know, hip-hop has uh, changed global popular culture. And, yeah, you know, some individual uh, uh, adherents of it in the present moment are still beyond the reach of pop culture. Sure. They're threatening to pop culture. Sure. Yeah.
0: Do you think that it is going to sort of fall off the way, sort of like rock and roll? I really thought hip-hop was a a trend because I had grown up in the 70s and 80s where music were trends. There was disco and then there – it was gone. and Punk rock. Right. Then there was punk rock and then that was gone. And then there was new wave, which was sort of disco mixed with punk rock – and then that sort of disappeared and then rap came and then grunge came, which was punk again, but different. Um, and then that sort of left. But hip hop, it just is steadily rising. It's steadily increasing. There's more and more people that are identifying with it. Um, I wonder, like, is there room for something new?
1: Well, I I think broadly, if if we look at hip hop per se, it one of the things that defines it is kind of how elastic it is. So you know, for example, um, it's always you've been required if you're if if you're a musician, if you're a rapper, and you can't come up with a unique way to express yourself within the idiom if you're too. Beholden to any rapper who you admire, you're, you're dead. You're a dead man. Right. You'd better figure out a way to uh, individualize yourself or you're going to get nowhere. Likewise, if you're in France, you have to rap in French. If you're in Africa, you have to, you know, rap in whatever the local language is, okay? You must. And so it's going to be hip-hop, but it's not going to be, you know— LL Cool J, wherever the hell you go. So that's right. that's one thing. It's it's elasticity, uh, I I think uh, helps to create this longevity that you talk about. That's one thing. And the fact that it, it, it's going to reinvent itself over and over again. Also, you know, I mean, even within the culture, you know, um, you know, one of the things I've been doing in recent years, and we can talk about this or not, but you know, I've I've built um, archives devoted to the history of rap. And, for the
0: Smithsonian, right? Well, one and, for the, and one
1: for Cornell. Right. So we can talk about that, but I'm just saying No, no, let's you know, talk about it now. Well within with, within the culture, I want to make this other point. Within the culture itself, there's not so much regard for hip hop's history. You know, really, it's it's still open. To newcomers, it requires newcomers. It's going to refresh itself over and over and over again. I would say it's at the expense of reverence for the history, but fuck me, I'm old. Right. You know, I just say it's, it's, o- it's, it's, o- for, the, it's, it's for young people. It's open to new artists all the time, and so that refreshes it all the time. Having said that, also, I want to make the point that the, the lasting legacy, the astonishing, lasting social impact of hip-hop has been to reintegrate America. Not just American culture, America. You remember Steve Stout put out a, a, a book at this point is 15 or 20 years old called The Tanning of America. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what hip hop did. There's no Obama in the White House without hip hop, so I think Obama himself would say. Okay? Now, you, you want to believe that uh, that kind of force would have kept Trump the fuck out of the White House. Right. Okay? That's some kind of anomaly. You know, as powerful as hip hop is, it's it, Queens,
0: it's Queens, Queens, New York, whatever.
1: Okay. Take over, all right. But I would, <laughs> I would, I would say broadly, you know, um, hip hop has literally changed the face of America, the complexion of America. So that's one thing. Okay. Okay. So now you want to talk about hip hop history? Yes. All right. I started to archive materials about the music I loved before there was such a thing known as rap or hip hop mm-hmm. okay when I started to write about music as a as a young critic uh you know my particular interest was uh black idioms i like jazz i like r and b and soul and I, you know i i certainly loved, i liked rock and roll as well, but those are the things that I cared about and so when um I started to write about it. If, if, you know, I'd been working in a record store, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd been holding on to promo copies of the records I was interested in from the time I started working in the record store. But what I didn't do, you know, at that time, you know, this is all very physical, friends. This has nothing to do with the digital world. There were there was uh, such a thing as uh, called records, okay? And the record salesman would bring promo copies of these records, right, in to the white us. sleeves. Right. <laughs> and and uh, I held on to those as a music lover. But when I started to write about it, I began to hold on to stuff that I'd thrown out previously, namely the artist bios and the PR photos. And I did it because, you know, if Bobby Blue Bland was going to come to Ann Arbor— and he had a new record out, so I could listen to the new record. But if at least I held on to a bio, I might learn a little bit about what led up to that moment, and I'd be able to write about it more intelligently. Mm-hmm. And particularly with regard to uh, uh, black artists, Uh, There weren't a ton of, and black idioms, there weren't a ton of reference works, So I thought, well, let me, in effect, create my own reference works. And so that's when I, so really starting in 1973, I began to collect these kind of materials on the artists I cared about. Mm -hmm. Fast forward 10 years. By the time I start working with Russell, you know, I've been collecting stuff on these wrappers I I like. And so where is all this stuff? Like in the storage
0: space, in your your, your living room? Like
1: what are you doing? In file drawers. I had it in file drawers. And there was a period when we lived in Boston, you know, the collection was getting kind of big. And there was um, a kind of a hallway between two rooms where I set up my desk and where I had my files. And my wife (laughs) uh, would walk past that uh, passageway and kind of hide her eyes, she would look away you know from this mess where all my stuff was. She called it the ugly room and she just <laughs> she just kept walking, so she endured it, but um, it wasn 't uh, wonderful it it didn 't look great um, so um, you know, and then by the time we moved to New York, where did I put my file drawers i mean certainly. You know, after a while— Because
0: it's, ha- it's, it's difficult to keep all that stuff. Well,
1: you know, I just— I, You moved it around. You, I, sh- you were shuffling. I, I moved it around, and by the time we moved to—you know, um, in 93, we moved to—oh, I remember now. The year that I uh, worked at Island, I had all my file drawers moved in to the offices on East 4th Street— and then when, when I uh, got fired at the end of the year, I had all the file drawers moved to this new place that we were living, um, in on uh, West Twenty Fourth Street, which is where we still live. To the basement, there was room in us. They they gave us a storage spot, so I was able to put my file drawers in there, and that's where everything is to this day.
0: All right, but now it's moving to the Smithsonian and to well, Cornell. you know,
1: so so. <laughs>
0: Do you Uh, feel like a great sense of relief? Like, I saved all this. Thank God I saved it. Take it now. I don't need to have it. Or do you want to
1: kind of... I continue to do it. I don't feel relief. I feel... um, A drive, right? I feel grateful. Okay. I feel grateful that it remains useful. I mean, one of the things that I discovered, certainly by the time I start working as a publicist for Russ, uh, you know, it's my job to talk every day to other writers and editors and uh, documentarians. And um, when they heard that I had these kind of materials, uh, you know, a lot of them wanted to borrow my stuff. Right. And I always made it available. But, you know, you have to know me personally to get the stuff. It's retarded, you know. Well, you know, how else are they going to get it? (laughs) Right. But, you know, it it just—it really did strike me after a while that, you know, maybe maybe there's a a better way. So when, uh, you know, Uh, Cornell jumped up. Catherine Reagan, who is the chief uh, rare books librarian at Cornell, expressed an interest in it. Um, I was delighted. And my only stipulation really was um, it can't just live in file drawers at Cornell. You have to digitize these these materials and put it online. And that was kind of groundbreaking because – I mean, obviously, you want to believe that all, all the el-
0: stuff pre-internet, just uh, you can't find it.
1: Well, that's true. That's one right. thing. And real particularly to the extent that there were uh, uh, other kind of hip-hop archivists, the kind of things that people collected were, uh, were records and flyers and photos. But collecting these kind of materials, newspaper and magazine articles, advertisements, uh, flyers, you know, paper ephemera, basically. Okay. Um... Tour itineraries, uh, press releases, you know, on and on and on. Um, Nobody even pretended to care about that. Okay, Uh, But, you know, as I said, you know, those materials had been useful to me as a writer and as a filmmaker. And they were useful to other folks that I knew Mm -hmm. who did the same kind of work. And so I thought uh, it would be useful as well to anybody who cared about uh, hip-hop history, no matter where he or she is. You know, and and they could access it on the internet.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. What a what a treasure and what a resource.
1: Well, you know, I want to believe it. And then you know, I've I've got another collection, the uh, the I Jammy photo collection that's gone to the Smithsonian, the the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Mm-hmm. And again, so gratifying to have it land there. Gratifying to me, you know, it, it's basically all the photos that I couldn't sell when I was at. You know, when I ran the the, the I Jammy Gallery, you know, I think I was a, a good exhibitor. You know, I've got taste. You know, I could I could curate a show, but I couldn't sell anything. I might have been too early.
0: You're not a merchant.
1: I'm not. I'm not. I'm a, <laughs> I think of myself as the wrong Jew. <laughs> so, you know, I couldn't sell it. And, and you know, when I shut down well, the well, gal- it just
0: was like it, it's, it's interesting early hip hop photos. In the 90s were viewed sort of as corny in a weird way. Oh, it was geez. sort of like the 90s was like we're officially here and like that stuff is like cool but whatever. Like we're moving Forward.
1: Well, just remember that, you know, I, I ran the gallery between 2003 and 2007, so mm. it's not the 90s. But even so, you know, I, I, I take your point. And I think the way I thought of it was like this it, well, it was, here's, t- it was here's too a-
0: young to be historical, but it was too historical to not be historical. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just think that the, the audience w- wasn't well versed in
1: how compelling those images well, are. Well, what I think was, you know, I, I thought of it like this, you know, um, you know, I've got a photo of Big Daddy Kane, a big, beautiful black and white print by uh, Al Pereira, okay. let's say. And um, I'm, I'm trying to sell it 11 by 14 uh, for $200.
0: Right.
1: And I, I had the feeling that, you know, folks would come in and see the photo and they'd be electrified by it. And they'd remember, wait a minute, I saw that in Right On magazine 20 years ago. And I paid $2 for it. And then to have Rhea Combs, who is the photo curator at Smithsonian, purchase it and add it to their collection. Um, actually, you know, uh, she bought it in 2015. The, the museum didn't even open up until 2016. But what that says to me, the, the, the most gratifying part of it to me is that, in fact, I was right. And these photographers were right. This stuff is history. It's history and it's art. And yeah. now all of that is codified. It's confirmed. I mean, I really did understand. truthfully, I understood that uh, as we were making hits, we were also making history. And that, you know, what we were doing was pretty remarkable. And, you know, to hold on to uh, these photos, and and also real particularly because this is more unusual, to hold on to what was written critically about this stuff in the moment was going to have historical impact down the road. Right.
0: Well, it looks like everyone is really looking— to elevate hip-hop historically, I really appreciate you being such a visionary. I really appreciate you in the great tradition of Jewish songwriters writing an incredible Christmas song. Do you know that like— Well, I
1: didn't—I I don't know that I well, wrote co-wrote, co-wrote. I conceived of it.
0: Conceived, as all th- <laughs> good Jews do. Christmas songs are gold— And um,
1: we're talking about Christmas and Hollis,
0: Christmas and Hollis by by Run DMC and having your wife cater all of your exhibitions that if I ever questioned my attendance, I'd be like, oh, my God, Sarah's going to make something. I have to go to that. And I would sort of sequester myself with your wife and talk her ear off. And she's trying to put out hors d'oeuvres for your guests. And I'm just there trying to bend Sarah Maltandere.
1: Well, it was fun. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you, you were not alone. You know, it was, you know, uh, these are, you know, broadly, they're separate worlds. And you know, I'm working in hip hop and she's working in the food world. And, um, you know, during that period, you know, starting in 2003, she's still on the Food Network. And, you know, she'd come to do the work that you said at my shows. And she was essentially kind of anonymous, you know she was but, but you know because she's on you know national television you know somebody like you would come in and, and you know do a double take wait a minute i was I've like se- i've wait seen this a woman second. i've seen her on television haven't I'm i i'm
0: like she's roasting nuts with the rosemary and maple syrup like what yeah, yeah it yeah. was um yeah, yeah. it was um it was a beautiful thing and that's what new york city is is a conglomeration of cultures. i call it a mishmash how about a that a mishmash um of of lots of good stuff yeah. and um you know, I really appreciate all your contributions, and thank you for it's coming It's been fun.
1: I appreciate, you know, it, I'm just saying my life has been so random in a way. There was never a time when I was 20 years old and I dropped out of school. There was never a time that I thought, well— you know, roughly, you know, 45 years later, I I would have done, you know, any number of these things. I didn't know. I had no idea. Just one thing has led to another. But as we've discussed, you know, the, the what binds it all together is an enduring love of music.
0: Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And and happy accidents. Right. So, Well, here's to the randomness of it all. And we'll see you soon.
2: Uh. Oh. Wow.
0: Why wasn't I there? Can we do that again? I mean, Bill Adler part 2. I'm sure yeah. there's like there's there's more there's more stories, there's more gems to be to be dropped. There's more to draw out. Um, but yeah. So Bill Adler does not have um a cell phone and Instagram or anything. If you want to find out more about Bill Adler, you better fucking Google him, <laughs> motherfuckers. Or just um, rewind this podcast. Or listen, just run, Listen yes. again. Or play it backwards. There's, there's uh, hidden, hidden messages. In, in all of... <laughs> there are in all of ours. Um, I'm going
2: to start doing that.
0: But I don't know. I'm obsessed with Bill Adler. I'm also, you know, I don't know if I talked about it enough in the podcast, but I'm obsessed with his wife. I, like, love her, and I wanted her to come so bad. <laughs> and... Um, you know, maybe we can just do a podcast with Sarah Moulton. She brings snacks. Only if she brings snacks, okay, Brad? I know how you are. Um, anyhow, you know where we be, yo? Brad's on SoundWag. Bubbles made the music.
2: Go check out my new uh, my new old podcast. Is live going off track?
0: Oh my god! Going off track is finally back.
2: Dun, 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 dun. <laughs>
0: Here's to you, Brad. Doing the most. Doing the most. Um, me, Claw Money. We changed our Instagram for Claw Co. We're now Club Claw Worldwide. Okay? Join the club. <laughs> Bye.